Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Almost a year ago, I received a link to an online article from the Twin Cities publication called City Pages about an amazing Lutheran church. Peace Lutheran Lauderdale, that came back from the edge of the grave via radically loving their neighbors. Needless to say, I was impressed and intrigued. Finally, this month, I tracked down Dave Greenland, their pastor, and experienced a blessing and an opening. Real, honest, challenging stories and guideposts on the road to living out radical love and life in a mainline church, addressing racism, sexism, earth care, and much more. I'm confident that both religious and non-religious listeners alike will find hope and inspiration in the story of a faithful people opening themselves to transformation with the greatest reward being the love they've been able to give. Dave Greenland of Peace Lutheran Lauderdale joins us via Zoom from Minnesota's Twin Cities. Dave, thank you so much for taking this time on a beautiful day outside to be sitting inside talking to me. Well, it's good to be here. And the reason I have you here today for Spirit in Action is because about a year ago, I guess it was last October, I saw an article that somehow got passed on to me from the city pages there in the Twin Cities about your church. And the headline was, Peace Lutheran staved off death by taking love thy neighbor to a radical extreme. So are you some kind of a radical? (laughs) You know, I'd say that I I probably wouldn't be in that company. But if you say, you know, caring for every neighbor, regardless of checking for credentials, I I guess that would be radical. Well, I do see on the shelf behind you there, the bookcase there, it says, say their names. That, for some churches, is considered radical. I assume you figure that Jesus would also say the names? Oh, I believe so. Although I I get nervous around Jesus in some ways because he's such a challenge. And I think he's a challenge to everybody. Even those of us that might feel like say their names is definitely a given. I think as soon as you let Jesus know that that's a given, he's going to challenge you on it. So I think there's a challenge by Jesus to everybody. So I'd like to think Jesus would be saying their names, but I think he'd probably just be sitting with them and probably eating with them and everybody. Yeah, we're in interesting times right now, and I don't want to claim anything that Jesus would or wouldn't do. So let's talk about this amazing transition. I say it's amazing because at least the way that the City Pages article spelled it out, Peace Lutheran was on the decline. It was down to some 20 members at that point. That's what I, it said. You know, the graying of mainline Christianity included this Missouri Synod Church, or at least formerly Missouri Synod Church. Then they called you in. So how did that work, actually? Well, I I originally got a call from the bishop's office asking if I would consider moving from a pretty well-established larger Lutheran church five minutes from here and asking if I would consider coming over here to to help them close down over the course of a year or so because, you know, they'd done what they could and it didn't look like it was going to be something that could continue. So the bishop's office didn't really want to lead me on to think that this is something that could be sustained. We had our second kid at that point, so we had two little ones. And incidentally, I just happened to live for the last three years down the street, two blocks from this church. 
and uh, really had never been inside the church or seen it open. So I assumed it was closed. In fact, they rented out their space in the afternoons on Sunday to another church, Mount Zion, Church of God in Christ. And the sign for Peace Lutheran was the same color as the brick on the wall of the church. So <laughs> the name Peace Lutheran blended in with the brick. You couldn't even tell it was Peace Lutheran practically. And so Mount Zion had a much bigger presence, even though they were the ones renting in the afternoon and probably had a few more members. But yeah, so I kind of thought about that and that's how it all started. So there was no pretense that this was something that would continue for over a year, let alone 16. So that's what we came into it expecting. So there's also the question of this affiliation with Missouri Lutheran. So Missouri Synod Lutheran and Wisconsin Synod are both significantly more conservative on the average than ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. And I guess there's still remnants out there of the LCA and the ALC and all of that. But I don't want to go into all the Lutheran politics, but it was originally a Missouri Synod Lutheran church. What's the history with that? It was Missouri Synod and had been for 60 years or something. And the short answer would be uh, back in the 70s when the Missouri Synod, I think this is partly a key to what happened here and what led us to you know the year 2004 when I came In the early 70s, there was legislation passed or constitutional amendment made to the Missouri Synod. I forget what the language is, but basically saying that you had to be a practicing member in good standing of a Missouri Synod Lutheran Church in order to have communion at a Missouri Synod Lutheran Church. So you had to have that certified if you went to visit someplace else or or whatnot. And at that point, a lot of pastors really bucked that decree, and they had to go into their council meetings all across the country saying that they would not abide by it. The overall church wanted all the pastors to sign on the dotted line, basically saying that they would abide by this. And so many pastors, you know, just said no, they wouldn't do it. Taking the position that, you know, as clergy presiding at at a communion table, we're just the wait staff, we're not the host, and we don't check anybody at the door. And it's about God's grace, unendingly, just full open. In so many churches, those pastors were either relieved of their duties and fired, or slowly made to be uncomfortable enough to have to leave. So the Missouri Synod really lost a lot of people at that point. And here at Peace, when that doctrine came out, the pastor that they had here refused to sign on the dotted line, just said, that's not what we're called to. And within a year, he basically was uncomfortable enough that he had to leave. And the church wanted somebody that would sign on the line and abide by whatever the ruling was from up on high, just following authority. In the end, um, they couldn't find anybody because there was such a shortage now of Missouri Synod pastors. Since they've been driven away. Yeah. They've all been driven away. So who are they going to find to fill temporarily these posts of Missouri Synod churches? They went for almost a year with nobody. And then finally, somebody had heard about a guy by the name of Ray Geist, who had been a Missouri Synod pastor in Indiana. And he had been relieved of his duties even before this, because he allowed women to read the text, serve on council, and his position was women are the same as men, of all all crazy ideas. Radical crazy, yeah. So he was relieved of his duties there in Indiana. He came to Minneapolis, and he got a PhD in creative writing, I believe it was. And then he went on to teach creative writing at the University of Minnesota and was doing that for a few years when they got his name. And he happened to be just down the hill from Lauderdale, where we are. So somebody approached him and asked if he'd consider coming up here to just fill in for a little bit. And he says, I don't think that's going to work. 
you know, I, I don't fit with that mold. And they said, we don't care about any of that stuff. We're just desperate to have somebody fill in the pulpit and caring for our people. Well, a short story here would be, he finally said yes, and, but then he made it, he said, you know, I will include women. I'm not going to do anything different and I'll allow anybody at the table. Um, and they said, we don't want to worry about politics right now. Just, just come and be here. So after a year of being here as their interim, they wanted to hire him. And he said, that gets so tricky. But by then he'd fallen in love with the people. The people had fallen in love with him. And basically they just gave him a full green light to do whatever he desired to do, as long as he just loved people faithfully. So in the end, the guy that left was nothing compared to what Ray Geist would be in terms of being open and inclusive. And so they basically, from that moment on, Ray was their pastor. And I think he was here for 26 years. And he basically, with the church, flew under the radar. So that started a whole journey for this church of kind of going against, you know, the decrees that were given about participation by women. And they knew they were doing that. They were breaking the rules. So they had to be really quiet about it. They didn't advertise it. They didn't tell many people. They were doing some wonderful, amazing things here, but they couldn't tell anyone without the fear of getting caught. So they whispered the gospel to everybody, you know, rather than just openly speaking or shouting it from the rooftops. And had they done that, it would be a different history today. And I think what would have happened is they would have left the Missouri Synod much earlier, but they would have been free to shout the gospel and to proclaim it. So all the years went by, and then in um, 1991, I believe it was, somebody came visiting at the church here during summer, and Pastor Geist was gone on vacation, and he had a tradition of when he was gone on vacation, he would get a woman from the seminary to take his place. And she would come up, and she would preach, and she would lead the service, and she would preside over the table. And again, take into account that, you know, the position women could take was very little. Here's this person doing the whole thing. And this person came to visit. So he sat in the back and this woman comes out and does all this and he falls apart. And the twist that I put to it is he ran out of that church, got on his horse and went back to St. Louis and found a posse to come back up here. So they were given a letter that they need to vote in two weeks. Are they in or are they out? And if they're in, all of that stops. And if they're out, they're out effectively immediately. So two weeks later, they took a vote. They say it was a, it was a unanimous vote in favor of leaving the Missouri for the ELCA at that time. But it, it wasn't unanimous. There was a family or two. They believed in what the church was and what it was doing, but they couldn't bear the thought of not being in a church that was Missouri Synod. They had to stay with their tradition. So instead of voting against it, they just refrained from voting. But that set them on the path in 91 to continue doing their ministry, but in a little bit more bold manner. But I don't know if this is fair or not, but I think the family systems kind of approach to, you know, what a congregation is, is a big family. It had a tradition of whispering everything. So it never really was able to get out there with a real strong voice for what it really stood for. So it had this timidness about itself. Uh, So by 2004, when I came along, most people in the neighborhood that I talked to didn't even think the church was open. And they would tell stories about it. it was a Missouri Synod church, and we didn't want anything to do with that. So to think that in 91, they left the Missouri, and in 2004, people in the neighborhood still believed it was a Missouri church. They had no idea that the change had even taken place. So the reason that I have you here, Dave, my interest is those who are doing inspirational educational work for peace and social justice. And I think that you're doing that there. I mean, when I saw the sign say their names, I already knew something about the way that you were reaching out. 
What happened when you arrived in 2004? Tell me about that first day. You're taking over something that you're supposed to shepherd to its death, I think. That's right. I remember the first Sunday I was here, it was my installation Sunday. They were installing me as their new pastor. We had agreed that I would be full-time here. I had a second kid. We needed the funds. My wife was in school. There was no way we could survive on a half. So that was negotiated ahead of time. And they, they would give guidelines, whatever was the guidelines for pay for pastors with my amount of experience, that's what they would give. And with that, you know, it would uh, allow for a year or 18 months or something like that. If offering stayed the same, along with money that they had gathered together years before trying to put an elevator in, and then they couldn't raise the funds for the elevator. So they just put a bathroom in upstairs that was handicap accessible. And then they banked the rest of that money, some 40 some thousand dollars. So together with $40,000 and the regularly weak offering, you know, it would fluctuate between we've got a year to a year and a half left. And that's the way it went. But the first Sunday, it seemed like there were a lot of people here. You know, we kind of feel like 150 people or something like that in the sanctuary, which was powerful. And I thought, man, they're not empty. You know, they've got plenty of people here. And then it occurred to me, it's mostly my wife's family. <laughs> Why, is she Catholic? <laughs> yeah, well, she's Lutheran, but all the, the people that came over from Como Park Lutheran, where I was serving for three years prior to that, is only five minutes away. So we're real close to that neighborhood. And it's not usual for a pastor to leave a church and then just go a few blocks away, you know, literally a mile and a half or something like that, because you might have people leaving that other church to follow. And I was an associate there, but the bishop was really pretty uh, confident they wouldn't move this direction because it's such a different experience of church from their their large building with high liturgy to this small little, what I've always called it, a little donkey without, it's not even big enough to put a full saddle on it, you know? (laughs) uh, They came and they were very supportive and caring. And then the next Sunday, I would say, would be my first Sunday alone with the people. I looked out at, you know, less than 20 people. And of the 20, you know, seven or eight of them were seminary students that were doing education stuff up here. And I thought, what is going on here? And then the the seminary students read the lessons, played the organ, led the choir. It's kind of like this workshop for seminary students to, you know, do church. And I thought, this is really something. So I, my sermon, I'll never forget it. It was on Lazarus being raised from the dead. I said to them, you know, it was really false advertising. They said that they were a dying congregation. I said, you're not dying, you're dead. This is false advertising. You guys aren't alive. There's not even a pulse here. What are you talking about? And they looked at each other and said, we had this guy come here? What? Exactly. exactly. And, uh, and I'm a pretty humorous person. And, and saying something like that would get a good chortle from people right now, a few of those people that are still here. But then, I mean, worship was not a time for... Levity. <laughs> And I said, you know, but the good news is you can't resurrect a body unless it's dead. And you guys are really dead. So maybe resurrection is possible, but you got to be really willing to be dead and recognize that and know that there's no other way but resurrection. That's it. So that's how the first thing went the first Sunday. And, and then I think there were two committees that were still operating at that point. One was the outreach committee. And one was the, um, oh, what was it? I can't even recall it, but I remember the outreach committee was going to be meeting the next day on Monday, Monday night, they're going to meet. So that's my first meeting. So the next day I came over for the meeting and really faithful, good people that just love this church and love this neighborhood. Uh, They were obviously worn out. They were so worn out. They've been doing this for so long. 
and they were getting ready to do a campaign in the neighborhood where they were going to go and knock on every single door and invite them to church. And that was their plan. And I, I said, so how long have you been working on the plan? And they said, almost a year. We're doing this. We do role plays and we practice on each other. And we're learning how to ask questions of people because they want to be asked questions too. And I said, I, I think it's an awful idea. It's horrible. You were really upbeat for them, weren't you? <laughs> I just said, you know, I said, I've done that. I've done that in a couple churches. It's not even a good way to meet your neighbors. And they were puzzled. And I said, let's put it this way. I live in the neighborhood. Let's say I'm not your pastor. I was just going to, you've got somebody else to lead you to do this. So this is what's going to happen. So I'm guessing you're going to go two by two, right? And they said, yeah, oh yeah, we're going to go in twos. Yep. I said, so here's what's going to happen. So I'm not your pastor. I'm just a neighbor in the street, a block over. And you're going to come out. I'm guessing you're going to do this over the dinner hour, right? Because we want people home. And they said, yeah, how'd you know? And I said, well, I've done this. I said, so I'm at home. My wife is in school. And I said, she will be in school about dinner time. And I said, so I'm at home with a two-year-old and a four-year-old. I'm making dinner as best I can. They're climbing on my head. I'm trying not to burn myself or them. And then the doorbell rings. I'm just filthy and the kids are screaming and they're hungry. And I look around the corner and I see somebody on the front porch and you see me through the window peeking around the corner. And I sneak back in the kitchen and think, shoot, you caught me. I guess I've got to go to the front door. So I'm going to have to bring the kids with me because I don't trust them to be in the kitchen. So I bring them with me to the front door where I don't want to go because I know there's something going on that I don't want to be a part of, no matter even if I believe in it, because I saw the clipboard. So as I get to the front window, I look and I see there's somebody with a clipboard. And now I know it's a church because the other person is down by the curb. With something else, they might be side by side, but this one's down by the curb. And you've got one person. So I open the door and say, can I help you? And they say, I'm from Peace Lutheran Church in Lauderdale. Do you have a couple minutes? As the kids are crawling all over me. And what's happened with you two is as you're walking up the street, your partner says to you, I got the last one. You do this one. I'll wait down here. So your friend goes up on the porch and rings the bell and has three questions to ask. You know, what do you think about safety? What's the most important thing for your neighborhood? Is there anything we can do? So you're asking them these questions that you're not even going to listen to the answers. And they're not going to be honest about them because they're not honest questions. So here I am with my kids at the door. It's dinner time. We're all hungry. You don't want to be there from the church. You do not want to be on the porch. And I don't want to be there as a homeowner. So what a great way to start a relationship. Neither one of us wants to be here. Shut the door. And then you go back to try and put your life back together. I said, it's a horrible idea. And they said, oh, good, because we didn't really want to do it. <laughs> and I, I said, I think there's some value in doing some of those kinds of things. But I said, you can't start there. And they said, well, what do you suggest we do? And I said, I have no idea. I'm at a loss. But I do know I don't want to do that. That would take us backwards because we'd be demoralized. We'd spend all this energy and time and come up with nothing. So I said, Monday, we come together with our ideas and think out of the box. How do you want to get known in the neighborhood? So they came back and everybody looked at their shoes I had remembered that week about a program that I was a part of in Berkeley, California, when I was in seminary out there for a year. I volunteered because I've done some home building and remodeling work. There was a senior center there in Berkeley and in Oakland. They had this program that they called Christmas in April. And in the spring, April, which still is not a good time around here because you still could be in winter, 
But in April, people would come together and they would attend to the requests for help from all the neighbors in the neighborhood. Anybody that had anything wrong with their house, Christmas in April would go around and do triage to figure out which ones they would do. And they'd raise funds to do all the repairs for the neighbors' houses from local businesses and people that would want to give donations. And they would pay for all the materials, but it was all volunteer labor by neighbors in the neighborhoods. And so I volunteered for that. And I was really moved by what they were doing because it was such a grassroots in the neighborhood thing. And it was connecting neighbors with neighbors. And I thought every single church should do that. So I said, why don't we do this? Why don't we just print up some flyers that say Peace Lutheran Church is looking for some homes to repair, maintain, fix up. Any problems that you have will come out and we'll fix And items include, and then a list, you know, painting, roofing, foundation work, electric, plumbing, you name it. We'll come and do it. And why don't we print those flyers up and tell them that we'll bring all the labor, we'll provide all the materials for anything anybody needs as a thank you for being partners with us in the neighborhood all these years. And they said, oh, well, we don't have the money for that. And I said, sure we do. We've got 40,000 bucks in the bank. And they said, but that's to pay you for the next year. And I said, look, it it doesn't matter to me if I'm here for three months or a year. I'm going to be looking for work. What should we be doing with this in ministry? If this is the last hurrah, and they were very, they were open. They understood that this was the last chance. And whether we were able to turn something around and uh, more than survive, but if we were going to turn it around, we could celebrate in a year that we were still here. But if we weren't going to turn it around, we're just going to have a great potluck and give thanks for the ministry. But why don't we go out with a big bang of generosity and just care and love for the neighborhood that they so loved? Why don't we just do that? Why don't we give it to the neighbors as a thank you? And they said, oh, well, that's what if we get too many people responding to these flyers? And I said, well, number one, I don't think that's going to be the issue. Why not? And I I said, because, okay, let's play the scenario out. I'm back on Melvern Street. And by the way, when you put these flyers out, you're not going to knock on anybody's door. You're just going to roll them up and leave them there someplace. Unless you really like to talk to people, then that's great. But for the most part, just put them out. 750 flyers on 750 houses. And then what would happen is I'd get this flyer. I'd bring it inside. I'm cooking dinner for my kids yet again, trying not to get burned. And I look at this flyer that says, Peace Lutheran Church in Lauderdale will come and fix your house up. Anything you want for free, just call this number. I would throw it away immediately. (laughs) because (laughs) I believe that. (laughs) Nothing is free. I don't trust anything like that. And if they did come, do they know what they're doing? What's the catch? I don't have the time to figure it out. So I said, I think probably 740 some are going to throw it away. And they said, well, well, then what's the purpose? And I said, but 740 some people are going to remember that Peace Lutheran was giving this away. They're going to remember that we're alive in the neighborhood and we're helping people if they'll allow us. And I said, in the end, we're not going to get any members out of this either. We're just going to get a few houses if we're lucky and we're going to get to meet some neighbors. So they went for it and we put these things out there and we got three houses that year, that first year, three houses responded. One was a roof, one was a foundation. And the other one was to be painted. And the one that was being painted was by a nurse who would come to um, be the only member that we got through Christmas in August for 16 years. She called me up and she said, you know, I'm on Eustace Street. I'm thinking about painting my house myself. 
But I know how these church things go. If you don't get anybody to respond, I'd let you guys come over here and join me to paint my house. (laughs) We had three houses, and then we made plaque boards, you know, little sandwich boards we'd put out in front of the houses that said Christmas in August. That would serve a couple purposes. One, let people know we're there. You know, we'd block the alley with a vehicle and then people would have to come and get us and they'd find out what we're doing. So neighbors on both sides of every house helped out. They came over to say, what you doing? And then they started to help. By the end of that first Christmas in August, we had, oh, probably 20 some people volunteer from the church in the neighborhood. And we made money on the program because the neighbors came out and gave donations to help in the efforts to do it again next year. So they were really believing in it. It shocked me. It shocked everybody that we could do this and people would be into it. And then, of course, the next year, I think I wrote some grants that got us through a little bit further, but people were on fire to do this again. And I think that the thought of being able to help our neighbors again and be connected to them is what kind of sustained us going forward. It wasn't, can we do dinner again? Or can we do Sunday school one more year or anything? It was, can we get to next year when we do this again? And then we, you know, we had, you know, six the next year, nine the next year, 10 the following year. And then 2008 came four years later, and it was the economic downturn really hit hard. And we had 40 some houses in one year, You just lined them up throughout the year? Did you just keep working year-round then? No. See, that's the other thing about this was it had to be in one weekend. One weekend. (laughs) One weekend. So you set it up. You set it up during the weeks ahead, and then you you figure out what groups can do what. And then we'd have on the average about 50 volunteers that would come and volunteer for Friday and Saturday. Early on, in the early days, Friday was kind of a staging day to get equipment and materials Then it became Tuesday and Wednesday were staging days. And then Thursday, Friday, Saturday were the days. So we basically have one week that we devote to this program until about four years ago. Then it started becoming kind of a year-round thing. It's kind of a dream of mine. It's kind of like pinch me and tell me that I'm not living this. But um, when somebody calls you up on Christmas Eve and says their furnace doesn't work, is there anything the church can do? And the church responds to go fix somebody's furnace or any number of those kinds of stories. It's like, so in some ways, the church becomes like a first call for help for people's homes and where they live. You know, it's what we can do. We still, I mean, 16 years later, we might have 100 members now, and we might worship 50 to 60 people on a Sunday before COVID, but we still have 30, 35 people on a Sunday with Zoom, but we're still active in the neighborhood. And this year, 16 years into it, we were thinking just this would be the first year we don't do Christmas in August for Lauderdale to keep people safe. But we decided to do kind of a drive-by Christmas in August. The way it works this year is we set the flyers out. They fill them out and they bring them back and they put them in a box. And then we triage which ones are important to do. Uh, like they need immediate help. You know, and I I say, if there's water coming out of your electric outlets, that's kind of to the front of the list. (laughs) (laughs) You know, if there's something smoking and you can tell there's something burning, that might be on the front of the list. But if somebody needs a fresh coat of paint on their fence, we'll probably try to get to it, but it may not be right away. And then we just put up a, a board outside that is covered and then people can drop them off there and then they can go and they go to the categories from plumbing, electric, painting, yard work, tree trimming, and they just go up to those boards and they look to see, you know, they've got some spare time with their family. We want to paint something. So they'll take one of those. They'll meet with the family. They'll make the contacts, find out how to do it safely together. 
And then when they're done, they bring that slip back saying that it's done and they put it on the finish nail. And so all of the categories on the board, they keep growing. We keep getting more responses. And, and we said, it won't be just one weekend this year and it won't be 50 volunteers together. It'll be over time and we may not get to it all, but we're going to do our best. It's going slow. I mean, I, I'm not going to lie about that. You know, part of the power of this program is it's done in two or three days with a lot of volunteers, a lot of food, a lot of energy that comes into this activity together in the neighborhood. If you don't have that, if it's just two people going out to pressure wash somebody's deck or to fix a a sink or or to run a, a sewer line, there's less energy in that. There's less togetherness. So Without the memory of the big event, I think it probably wouldn't catch a lot of imagination and commitment from people. But it is happening slower, but we're still maintaining our connections and we're trying to do it safely. Yeah, so that's how it's gone. And part of the desire that we had to become a community here as a community church that really was with all other churches everywhere, trying to figure out how do we connect with busy people in their lives that are are working one, two jobs, you know, single parents, you know, when do we have time to connect with each other, you know, in this drive in your car, park in your garage world and no front porch activity between neighbors and you know, we decided that we, this is what we need to do. We need to get into people's homes and to care for them. And again, one person became a member as a result of this out of 16 years that actually we worked on their house. They became a member and the neighborhood knows that. So uh, they're not as shy anymore to say, yeah, why don't you come and take a look at my roof? knowing that there's no strings attached. We're going to be a neighbor, which is what we're called to be. And so another thing that we did years ago after the economic downturn is this insurance company, this nonprofit Thrivent Financial, they wanted to give grants out to churches to help with people that were struggling with loss loss of jobs. And we'll give you $5,000 to spend any way you want to help people in this economic downturn. What would you do with the money? We had to write up something. And one of my dreams for years has been to create a lending library of tools for homeowners. It's such a sensible thing, yeah. So I decided, let's do that. I only knew of one, and it was in Berkeley. I saw it in Berkeley. And it was run through the public library. There was a garage in the public library in Berkeley, California. And you could go there with your library card, check out any tool that they had, and you could have it for three days for free. From concrete mixers to jackhammers to drills to you name it. And, and I said, I'd love to do that. So I wrote, I wrote this grant to Thrivent, bless their hearts for thinking of this. And they were saying, you know, maybe to help people with electric bills or gas bills. And I, I said, boy, a little church like us, if we gave $5,000 away for electric or gas bills, it would be gone in under a week. And, and the line would continue to grow. And we'd have to say, we can't do anymore. I said, however, if you gave us 5,000 bucks, I would go out immediately and buy some tools that everybody needs. And the first one I would buy in this old neighborhood is a big mainline sewer line snake for rotting out sewer lines for houses that have roots growing in them. And I would say I would buy that. And brand new, they're pretty expensive, you know. But if I had any money left over, I'd buy a couple other things to do with sewers. Because if you're poor and you own your house, if you've lost your job, if you're a single parent, and if you can't fix your windows, you just tape them up. If you can't paint your porch, you just let it rot. But if your sewer line quits working, you call Rotor-Rooter and you give them a credit card and you rarely get out for under five or $700 in a bill for them running your, your sewer line. 
He said, so if the church was the place that had a sewer line snake, like one of the serious ones, we could help countless people to run their sewer lines. And that was back in 2008. So here we are 12 years later, and we've got three sewer snakes of various sizes. But I'll bet you we've done 50 houses with that sewer snake. And the deal is, if you need this sewer snake, and if you've got somebody that's able to run it and learn how to run it, you keep the snake in your basement or your garage until somebody else needs it. And then you take it to the next neighbor and you teach them how to use it. And then you meet your neighbor. And so all these people have these tools. So the, the tool lending library has grown. Thrivent liked the idea so much, they gave us another $5,000. So we've got $10,000 worth of used tools. I think there's only one tool that's brand new that we couldn't buy used. And everything else is used that people can come and get from, you know, jackhammers and sheetrock lifts and infrared cameras to tell where your house is leaking and uh, with this climate the way it is. And that's the only tool I had to buy brand new for 2000 bucks. And uh, you can't rent them. You can't rent an infrared thermometer camera. So everybody can come here and borrow that and take a picture of where everything's leaking and fix the leaks. So it's, I feel really good about the lending library. And it's been broken into before and things were stolen. But I am thoroughly convinced that if somebody steals something, we get replacements for it tenfold sometimes. And it's just a beautiful thing. Folks, we are speaking for Spirit in Action to Dave Greenland. He is pastor at Peace Lutheran Lauderdale. Now, that's right in the midst of the Twin Cities of Minnesota. And we'll say a bit about that in a moment. He's with us here today for Spirit in Action because their church has done something to turn around their mission. They've actually decided to live out love in the community, to live as true neighbors to the people next to them. And that certainly, from my point of view, is peace and social justice and how appropriate that is Peace Lutheran that's doing this. On our website, which is northernspiritradio.org, you'll find a link to their website, which is again, peacelauderdale.com, and to all of our guests of the past 15 years for both Spirit and Action, Song of the Soul, Talk to People all over the country and even outside of the country, people doing healing work for the world. And that's certainly what Dave Greenland and the folks at Peace Lutheran are doing. When you come to our site, remember to comment on our programs. You can rate them as well. And there's a donate button if you want to support the work of NordenSpiritRadio.org. Just click there. And I also want to really encourage you to support your local community radio station. Our programs are carried on some 40 plus stations nationwide. Folks who are trying to bring out news from the community, of the community, by the community. And it makes such a difference to have that voice because the big national chains, radio stations, they have no interest in the community. It's whatever minimizes their cost, maximizes their profit. So please support your local community radio station. They run by your volunteer hands and dollars. And again, Dave Greenland of Peace Lutheran in Lauderdale. Just say a, a few words, by the way, what Lauderdale is. You've mentioned it as a town. It's right there. You've got these other things around it. We know this area is the Twin Cities, but what's Lauderdale? It's right between Minneapolis and St. Paul. So it's, it's basically got one way in and one way out, and nobody knows anything about it. And it's like population 2,500. Back when little towns were being incorporated and, and put together, they were going to become part of St. Paul or Falcon Heights or Roseville. And very um, independent-minded people said, we're going to be our own township. We're going to be our own town, and we'll, we'll call it Lauderdale, and we'll have our own city hall, 
and we're going to do our own thing. And I think it was 2001, we got curbs and gutters installed for the first time. Before that, <laughs> It was just basically oil on top of dirt road, right in the middle of the cities. And we moved in and we're going to order a pizza the first night we were here for people that helped us fix the place up. And uh, we ordered this pizza and we said, we said, you know, this is our address in Lauderdale. And they said, oh, we don't go that far. And they said, we're blocks away from you. And they said, no, Lauderdale is a long ways away. And <laughs> so even, even 20 years ago, people don't know where it's at, which is kind of a, it's a good secret. It's right in the middle of everything. It's, it's right by the fairgrounds. Let's say a little bit more about your ministries and what motivates them, in part because Peace Lutheran, in doing this work, if you're going all the way back to the Missouri Synod issue, you weren't supposed to be reaching out to women and people who were outside of your community. You've already said in the 16 years of doing this Christmas in August that in all of this time, you've only had one person become as a member. So you're not clearly just out there beating the pavement to recruit. You've evidently reached out to everybody of every belief of every race. I mean, I don't know. When I looked on your website for peacelauderdale.com, I saw on your schedule, it has your worship time, but it also has Emmanuel on there and it has a monk church that evidently use your building as well. So there must be a number of monk people around your area as well. And I see behind you, right by your ear. Who is that? That's Gandhi. I thought it was Gandhi. I could only see an angle. So you've got Gandhi and right on the wall, I see something written in, it's Chinese. Okay. I was going to guess Japanese actually, but so you've got Chinese there. Okay. And then we say the yin yang sign. And then we see Om up there and we... (laughs) Basically, let me just set the tone here. I knew that I had come to a place that was pretty special in the first couple minutes of meeting the call committee here. They were excited to try to do a ministry that meant something here, even though it was like every other church that's struggling to figure out how to do it. The first question they asked me when they wanted to see if I was a fit here, and it's a subtle one, they asked, and take into account, we're in the basement below the sanctuary. Upstairs is Mount Zion Church of God in Christ, a black church that's just loud as can be, you know, just belting out songs and prayers and up above us. We can hardly hear each other. I go to take off my coat. It's winter time, And they said, oh, leave your coat on. It's pretty cold down here. We can't really heat the basement very well at all. It just leaks. There's no insulation in the walls. So I kept my coat on. They gave me a cup of coffee, thank goodness. And then they asked the first question, which was, who would you not baptize? And then they followed that one up with, who would you not commune? And that was the spirit of this people and this place. They've been giving themselves away for so long, but they just didn't know how to put their bodies out there. So they've always been open. And there was a couple that worshiped here with their two children. None of them were baptized. And the father was Hindu, is Hindu. And then there were a couple Muslim people from St. Paul that were worshiping here and would come up and have bread at communion and not any wine, but they were part of the community. In between pastors, they had a struggle with an interim that refused to let the Hindus or the Muslims have communion. And anybody that wasn't baptized couldn't have communion. So all of a sudden, you've got 20 or so people you know, worshiping here. You're not allowing some of them to participate as community. They were really on fire to figure out how can they assure that they're going to find somebody that's not going to be checking credentials at a door. They wanted to be radically open 
that's where it started in the early days. And then as the meetings continued to go on after that first Christmas in August, they wanted to do a bigger effort at letting people know that we're here. So they wanted a welcome statement, you know, because everybody has to have a welcome statement, you know, some kind of a business plan or some, some kind of a, you know, some kind of a branding or something. And I said, well, why don't we start with who do you want to have sit in the pews with you? Who do you want here? And they started listing them off. And I said, well, anybody? Do you want anybody to come here? And they said, well, yeah, anybody. We'll, t- we'll take anybody. And I said, well, how about if somebody's alcoholic? And they said, well, of course, you know, we've got alcoholics around here. You know, I'm alcoholic myself. And I said, what if they're not sober? Is it okay if they're not sober? They said, well, I guess. And then right down to, you know, what about somebody that's gay? What about somebody that's transgender? What if there's somebody that is a child molester? Mm, That's a good one. That's a good one to ask because that gives a lot of people who otherwise think they're completely inclusive pause. Yep. And I tell you what, if you look at our website, there's a welcome statement and that's not on there. It's not because they wouldn't be welcome. They'd be welcome. And yes, we have had people on the registry for being child molesters. I guess I have to be a little uh, honest. I mean, we do have people like that and we keep an eye on them and they're not allowed to be with kids without supervision and whatnot. And generally speaking, there's such a big phobia around that, but it's not on there because every year we would vote on the welcome statement and they could not pass with a consensus to have that on there. So we had to do it without. You do do your decisions by consensus? We do our best. Yep. We tried to vote to become reconciled in Christ, to open to gay, lesbian, transsexual, everything back in 2006, seven. And we probably had 95% yes, but we decided to table the vote because we had four people that said they wouldn't do it. And we said, you know, we don't want to have this violence of voting hurt anybody. And until we can get that consensus, we don't need to do that. And then in time, you know, those people left anyway. Could I ask, because Quakers have been doing this for 350 years, we decide things in unity. Mm -hmm. consensus is actually a weak term compared to what we're really looking at. We're looking together to do what God would ask us to do, right? And when we can be clear on that, even if we are not clear about the specific item, we may say, we trust this is from God. But I'm not aware of Lutherans, ELCA or otherwise, using that kind of manner. Is this something you imported or is it something that was typical amongst that congregation already? I think I imported it. I just felt like, uh, you know, it's pretty easy to import something when there's 20 people. It's a much easier thing to think about consensus than having 120 people do consensus. If we're going to be honest about keeping this ministry viable, then we all need to be on, on board and we all need to realize what the stakes are. And we all have to, you know, we might not like what we're about to do, but can we do it for the sake of others if it looks like there's enough people that really want to run with it? Can we take a back seat but still support it? It's not about just walking away, but can we wrestle with these things? As you know, as a Quaker, it's not a perfect system either. There are people that will just not give their views just because they know that, you know, it's going to upset too many people. But I do my best to kind of pull it out of them because I really believe that dissenting opinion, even with stuff that I'm passionate about, or maybe especially, is important. It's important to slow it down to get everybody there because we're not going to get there without each other. But at the same time, I'm not going to pretend that we haven't really taken a real strong left turn 
there aren't a lot of people that would be on the right that would be comfortable here, even though it might say it in a welcoming statement. What usually happens when you take those steps and people stay silent, as you were referring to, is it niggles and bothers them and they kind of silently fade away. Yeah. They'll disappear rather than that. And it takes some pursuing to find out what actually was going on for such folks. Right. That's true. So do you figure that you've lost of that original 20 or something who were active? Did you lose, you know, 20% of them? Well, you know, early on, you know, if we had 20, we probably lost four which isn't a whole lot, but it's a huge percentage. (laughs) (laughs) And by the way, that is exactly 20%. Just, I was a math major, so I knew that right away. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's not a light thing you do, but at the same time, I mean, I think we've never really been as a church. I don't think we've ever really been taught or trained how to have a good fight, how to have a good conversation and to realize we can do it in a loving way. I think people are used to not sharing what they really think, but it comes out, it leaks out all over the place. And then what people do is they do their best to do the least common denominator so that everybody can go along with something. And what happens is, is so watered down by the time you get out the door, you're whispering the gospel rather than, you know, say their names. You know, Philando Castillo was killed by our police department. You know, we share it with Falcon Heights. You mean the Lauderdale? The Lauderdale Police Department is shared with St. Anthony Park or St. Anthony uh, Village and Falcon Heights. You know, I know most of the police officers. I'm intimately connected, but Philando Castile is a tragedy. And it's not simple. You know, there's nothing simple about what happened there on any side. And unless we can get together and have a real conversation about the complexities of it, we get nowhere if we just want to say that, one side is right, one side's wrong, or defund police is the answer. I think reallocating funds and then rethinking how the police operate and what their mandate is and what they're called to do, which is some crazy stuff. It has a lot to do with uh, mental health, and that's not what they're trained to do. Well, and dealing with homeless people, even if it's not mental health, it's just, there are they supposed to be social workers as well? A lot of people don't understand that this defunded police is often, what are talking about is just reallocated to people who are more appropriate and don't come with guns to shoot right away. And the police are needed. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that we kept the police department and we continue to work. But there's some things that have been changed about that. But if we just take a backseat and we don't show up with what our, our thoughts are, even if it seems unpopular... The conversation does not get richer, and it doesn't get closer to where we should go together. Otherwise, it just divides people, and then people aren't marching. It's like, he's not my president. You know, I didn't vote for him. No, he is my president, and I need to stand up and speak about it because I'm a citizen. If you don't take that really seriously, it's easy to just fade into the background as a church, as a family member. And I think we're really good at fading into the background especially when the loud ones are the ones that stand up and blow all the smoke and scare everybody else off. And then you just, you just show up on game day when you find out you've got the same jersey on as the next person over. Then you, then you clump together as a, as a team, but you don't get any further as a nation that way in any way or as a church or as a community. So it's complicated. Life is complicated, but in other ways, it's so simple. You know, everybody's lovable. Everybody, if you can just get below the surface sometimes, or, or if we can let our own shells, our hard shells kind of fall off, and we can lead with vulnerability. That's the big thing nowadays, and it's right on. If you can be vulnerable, and you can let people know, yeah, your toilet is really messed up. I can't believe it hasn't worked for three years. But you know, 
I grew up that way. I know what that's like, and we're going to get you some help. And I'm going to guarantee you, after I'm done fixing this toilet, it's going to quit working again sometime. Call me again, because that's what they do. It's plumbing. Plumbing always breaks. So don't be ashamed of it. I'm kind of delighted about the idea of Dave Greenland as being a contractor or maybe just a carpenter. I guess there's this guy named Jesus who evidently set the template for that. But it's very unusual to think of the pastor of a church like Peace Lutheran Lauderdale as, I mean, I really, it it sounds to me more like you had, I don't know how many years you spent training to become a contractor in the way that you are, but it certainly seems to me that your job description, if they have to replace you ever, has to include two thirds for that. Is that part of the skills that really may, or is this just learned on the job mostly? I mean, most everything is on the job for pastors and carpenters. <laughs> it's really true. No, I, I didn't study to be a carpenter. I, you know, I built our own house. You know, I've done additions. I can, we built our own elevator here when we decided we we're going to stay around. Let's build our own elevator. So we started digging and uh, we learned how to build an elevator and went from 200 and some thousand to do it to 40,000. So now we can get everybody downstairs. Everybody's included in dinners. And, you know, we have solar panels on the roof from a grant. We're a lead building now. You You don't have to wear your coat still in the basement? No, we don't because we had a creative solution to insulating the basement with little greenhouse dog houses on the outside of the building, which captures the earth's heat, keeps it warm. And then uh, we put solar panels on the roof. We produce more energy than we use completely here. And then more grass. I went on a sabbatical back in 2010 after being here for six years. And when I came back, I realized they had dug up about 50% of all the grass on the property and turned it into community gardens. And they didn't even ask me. (laughs) Good. (laughs) I thought that was such a success story that, you know, and I have a very brown thumb. I I can't grow anything. I kill things, you know, I just look at them. And so I I really have very little to do with the garden, but it is one of our prized possessions here. And it connects people. We've got people from Bhutan um, that garden across the street by the sound wall that we've provided. And reaching out in different ways and letting people have a piece of the earth to tend and care and and it connects people. And so there's always something happening. We've got a pizza oven that we built out front. You can't get in this church without walking past the pizza oven, a wood-fired pizza oven. And and I'm a potter. One of my loves is to throw pots. And so we're building a high-fire kiln in back and pottery wheels next to the altar. And so it's kind of fun. We do lots of clay stuff around here because we are clay. You know, I don't know of anybody that doesn't like to hold a piece of clay. It's comforting. And that's what we are. You know, we are clay. The building, you know, we cut all the pews up the first couple of months I was here. We just, we cut them all up and used the board feet for different things like bookshelves and wainscoting and insulating the walls of the church sanctuary and then covering that with the pews that have been ripped. Um, <laughs> like the bookcase behind you here is, that's all old pews. We built a new altar that's movable, it's portable on wheels that was all made out of pews. And then we put a labyrinth in the middle of the floor uh, that people can walk when they want. And we meet in a circle now. And so we've done a lot of things that just, you know, what do we need and how do we get there? And then, then we try to walk that direction. What's the relationship of Peace Lutheran? I'm very concerned about people of all stripes, sizes, shapes, right? Identities. With respect to racism, is there something you've been able to find clearness to about that? I think the only clear thing that we have is that we're racist and we need to address how we function as a predominantly white congregation 
you know, what does that mean that we're, we're able to have the luxury of having things go our way? What is this about? And how do we address it? What's a faithful response other than, you know, statements that we can make? You know, there's something that's been going on for hundreds of years that keeps segregation. What do they say? The most segregated hour of the week is Sunday morning. There's a lot of fear and suspicion of each other. Even if you want to be a progressive white Christian, you got to dig deep and realize that it's not as simple as just making a decision that you're not going to do this anymore. We have a group that's been meeting, wanting to, I, I forget what the name completely is, we do it weekly on Zoom. How do we walk beside people in this and try to learn and try to be open? I think we'd be the first people to say that, yeah, we're going to be anti-racist. But there are things that are just in our skin, deep in our hearts that are just, they're like burrs under our saddle that just are a part of, of everything we do. And we're trying to unpack that stuff. And folks, you're going to find more about Dave Greenland and Peace Lutheran Lauderdale. If you go to their website, peacelauderdale.com. In the article in citypages.com, folks, that I read again almost a year ago, that's how I learned about Dave Greenland. It spells up other things about your childhood. You had a hard one. You understand a hard life from the other side. You didn't grow up with Silver Spoon. And I appreciate so much that, Dave, that led you into having that kind of open, loving heart that you have that found its right chemistry with the people there at Peace Lutheran in Lauderdale to be a change agent for the world. Thank you for following that so faithfully, and may you continue to spin wonderful pots there with the clay, both the physical ones and the spiritual ones that you're working with. Thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you for doing what you do. What a powerful thing. Again, folks, come via northernspiritradio.org to find your way to peacelauderdale.com and Dave Greenland, but also to hear all of the bonus excerpts from my visit with Dave that couldn't fit into this broadcast. Deep dives into the nuts and bolts of addressing racism or dealing with radically inclusive theology, and sometimes light discussion of Lutherans and jazz and coffee and heavy solar-bearing roofs all on northernspiritradio.org. Remember to also check on the link to the City Pages article about Peace Lutheran. Read up, get to know your neighbor, love them, and join us again next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo of